1: Hello everyone, welcome to New Books Network. I'm Tiatum Su the host of this channel. Today I'm here with Dr. Nishant Kumar to talk about his book, Religious Offense and Censorship of Publications. I think a lot of talk has been going on about freedom of speech and expression and also censorship around the world. And I think this book comes at a pivotal time uh, here in the Indian context also where uh, we are today, uh, I'm going to discuss the issue of um, censorship and freedom of speech with Dr. Nishan Kumar. So let me straight away go to the author himself and ask about his work. So Dr. Nishan, can you tell us something about yourself? Yeah. Thank you, Tiamsu. Actually, uh, I
0: started my academic journey from Delhi. I did my undergrads at uh, Hindu College in University of Delhi and then went on to do my master's from JNU. And uh, then uh, for my uh, PhD, I I received a a generous grant from the Commonwealth Scholarships and uh, I completed my PhD at uh, King's College London. And uh, that is my academic journey. And uh, my main area of interest uh, has been political theory, and uh, also intellectual history. So I work in the area of history of ideas, more generally.
1: Interesting, yeah, interesting um, journey, academic journey. Now, I think every book or every work, in a sense, has a history or a journey to it, like an Indian individual's journey, that's like the um, ideational the um, kind of concept formation and the kind of work that you go into so i I believe this book also has a personal journey of yours into the academics and why you chose to write on this so can you tell us something about the context of this very book yeah yeah uh, first
0: of all let me make it very clear that this book uh, is uh you know outcome of uh, my phd research and then i went further ahead in that field and it's a uh, it's an output of that whole labor of five seven years and uh, uh, how i came across this topic is very interesting because as i mentioned i work on the history of ideas and uh, when i started my uh, uh, doing my research in the history of ideas especially uh, freedom of speech and expression was something which was very close to my uh, uh, upbringing and uh, this idea of freedom in in particular was very interesting. Uh, What happened was that uh, when I started uh, started working on this uh, project, I found that uh, uh, this issue of freedom of speech and expression was finding a a very difficult terrain in in the Indian context, there was a lot of uh, confusion and a lot of cases being uh, coming out every day and there was a lot of debates and discussions about uh, how law and everything engages with uh, this idea of freedom of speech and expression in India. And that is how I uh, started thinking about these ideas and uh, uh, that then I started working progressively on uh, and trying to, you know. Uh, first prepare myself mentally and methodologically to engage with uh, uh, supreme court and high court cases as you know in india we have uh, two main uh, bodies of judiciary that is high court and the state level and the supreme court which is the highest uh, apex court uh, in some way and that is how i started to engage with these ideas and uh, freedom of speech and expression, and within that, uh, particularly, a lot of debates in India was uh, around this idea of religious uh, offence. Why this became uh, more important in the Indian context was because, as you know, India is known as a multicultural, multi-religious society, and then, obviously, there are situations when uh, the issues pertaining to religious offence and feeling of uh, hurt come to the fore. And when it comes, particularly with regard to and with relation to publications, it becomes really very interesting. And because understand, this uh, literature or publications is not a very popular medium of uh, you know uh, receiving. Because if you if you uh, make a movie, it goes to wider audience. But if you are publishing something, only the literate population can read or write and that you know in India uh, unfortunately the, uh, the literacy rate is uh, not as good as uh, Europe or America but on the one hand it goes to a very limited uh, audience but that also creates the danger of misinterpretations and rumors taking a larger shape and creating more public order issues in the context of India. Because if people have not themselves engaged with the book or a pamphlet or a newspaper article, they listen to whatever the interpreters have to tell them and they believe in it. And that is some that was something that actually encouraged me to work on this particular aspect. So uh, I call it a hard case of freedom of speech and expression. Why I called it a hard case of freedom of speech and expression is because that it it, although it is a one aspect of freedom of speech and expression, the difficulty in which this aspect works in the Indian context also st- tries to show you something about the larger debates and discourse about freedom of speech and expression in, in the Indian context. And why judiciary? Understand this, that when the uh, framers of the constitution were producing the Indian constitution in 1940s, uh, late 40s, they had this idea that courts, especially the Supreme Court, would play a very important role in protecting the fundamental rights and article 19-1a of the fundamental rights in India actually protects every individual's freedom of speech and expression which is then is uh, you know somehow reasonably restricted through article 19-2 which has been kept open which I also discuss in my uh, one of my chapters and it was believed that the supreme court would play an important role in protecting the fundamental rights of the citizens now how judiciary engages with this question about freedom of speech and expression because also remember article 525 of the indian constitution protects the right to religion in somehow right to practice propagate and uh, all these things so when you talk about religious offense what is at stake is a is a battle between two fundamental rights it's the ri- article Nineteen One a versus article 25 so court becomes also the space where these ideas engage they battle it out and how it comes out in form of expression also becomes a reference point about the whole idea of freedom of speech and expression because these court cases also determine the future of the scope of liberties in India in a certain ways. And that is why I was very interested in this topic.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Quite an elaborate overview of the work and the background to it, actually. Um, You know, interestingly, obviously, um, we hear again and again about freedom of speech and expression and also in terms of censorship and religion and all of those aspects but can you also kind of delve more into the um historical and conceptual aspect of what really this freedom of speech is and when it comes to uh, religion and also when it comes to publication censorship why do we need this freedom of um you know speech and freedom of expression and you know um to what extent does this uh, freedom goes to? Because obviously, um, if there is certain kind of freedom attributed to certain things, then obviously there is a s- certain sense of, okay, um, you you are free to do these things, but also there are certain sense of restrictions also. And obviously, certain restrictions comes because in the society, there are certain aspects or certain part of religion or any aspect of the uh, day-to-day lived aspect that um, you know, may offend certain people or community in a certain way. So we need to preserve uh, that, you know, sentiments and the feeling of their so, so can you, you know, elaborate on the conceptual historical aspect of this? Yeah. Yeah. If uh, we go to the
0: conceptual history of uh, the idea of freedom of speech and expression, now we have to remember two things when we are talking about the Indian context. A, India was ruled by the British for a long period of time. So... Most of these censorship laws or uh, the idea about restricting freedom of speech and expression comes from the administrative uh, design of the British administration in India at that time. Interestingly, second, important point that we have to remember is that uh, before india even became independent the values of liberty equality fraternity were already making rounds in the indian circle particularly amongst the indian nationalists which also had a very significant impact when india was when india became independent or when the uh, framers of the constitution were actually designing the constitution for free india now what happens is that if you look into the history These two important uh, ideas or these two important aspects have a very remarkable uh, impact on the way freedom of speech and expression was imagined in India. Now, why I'm saying that is that A, when the constitution was being created, even in the constituent assembly debates, we find, interestingly, that there is no debate about why India should have freedom of speech and expression as if it was taken as given that because all the good democracies of the world, especially the reference point was to U.S. and the First Amendment of U.S., uh, that all the successful great democracies of the world have freedom of speech and expression, so we should also have it, A. And B, Indian nationalists, while they were battling it out against the British authorities, they always had this demand for freedom of speech and expression, especially... In the form of press freedom because press uh, freedom of press was one of the significant tools that was that was being used by the nationalists to motivate the culture of uh, you know free debates and discussions about the government authorities or criticize the government authorities at various important points now if you look into the history of uh freedom of speech and expression in india particularly with regard to the curbing of freedom of speech and expression in india through law it begins with uh, curbing of press freedom as early as 18th century and uh, uh, when the first uh, uh, newspaper was started in india since then whenever we find whenever there were some political disputes or some uh, issues that the government british government was engaged with for example the anglo afghan war or etc in all these things we find that the authorities came out with new and new, newer laws like vernacular press act will come out or some kind of press acts will come out that will restrict freedom of speech and expression later on when macaulay Became the law commissioner of India, and he started designing the Indian Penal Code, which was obviously in the in the li- in line to the Benthamite tradition of uh, 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 of uh, preparing set pattern of legal understanding for a country, codification of law, which we can call. And uh, he engaged with this question about how much freedom of speech or expression is good. And there what we find is that uh, uh, Macaulay and later on even James Fitzgerald Stephen, who had a very central role in devising the CPC or the uh, Civil Procedure Code, they had a a very pragmatic idea, pragmatic in the sense that uh, obviously they were British men, so they were making laws based on the interests of the British authorities. So Indian Penal Code and CRPC and CPC that were framed during that period, the codification of law in different forms, they actually tried to curb freedom of speech and expression for the natives in different ways. Interestingly, what we find is that many of these laws that were created in, say, 1860s or 1870s still continue today. What is important to understand is that many scholars believe that these are colonial laws and should be done away with. But we have to understand that while the constitution was taking shape or even after the constitution was framed a lot of times and in my book i discuss about uh, two important amendments that happened in 1961 and 1969 where these laws were revisited by the lawmakers and after minor amendments they were still accepted as needed in indian context so we cannot say that because the british brought out these laws and it was created during the colonial times we should do away with these laws. We have to understand that even in the independent context, the Indian lawmakers, I'm not judging whether they were right or wrong. My work as an academician or a scholar on the subject is not to judge whether they were right or wrong, but rather to understand the motives and the reasons behind. So I am dealing more with the how and the why questions here. And there we find that the the because of the per- pertaining conditions of that period or the context in which these laws were debated they agreed that these kind of laws were still required so the history of restricting freedom of speech and expression goes well uh, to the 1760s and 70s and 80s what we find interestingly is the, the debates in the constituent assembly when article 191a as i mentioned was made a fundamental right What the debates in the Constituent Assembly also suggest is that the the national movement leaders who later on became the framers of the constitution, they believed that even if we have freedom of speech and expression, we could not give unlimited liberties like the US. And therefore, they drew on Article 19.2, which called on for reasonable restrictions on certain grounds. What happened is that these grounds were left very open. For example, words like decency, words like public order were used but they were not explained what decency would mean, what label would mean there. They were left unexplained and that is where I later on debate that the role of judiciary becomes very important in defining these terms for the cost even the founding fathers of the constitution secondly we also have to understand that uh, there are certain areas where even the national leaders were very emotional and if we look into particularly 1880s because remember the most important laws that uh, govern freedom of speech and expression under the IPC are uh, 153 b and uh, uh, 295a and both these laws were created later on 1898 and uh, in 1920s and both of these times what we find is that although these nationalist leaders themselves on the one hand they were fighting for more and more freedom of press, so that they could criticize the government, they could write against the government, they could expose the brutalities of the government. On the other hand, when it came to the question about freedom of speech being misused for religious propaganda, be it vis-a-vis the Christian missionaries' work that they were doing, or the tiff between Hindus and Muslims, both in 1890s, or 1920s if you see that period many historians have called that period as the you know uh, a period of communal polarization because of different kind of uh, uh, movements that cow protection movement in 1890s or in 1920s then there were a lot of issues uh, related to hindu muslim relations in india so these periods were very difficult because a lot of polemical work rhetorical work condemning or vilifying denigrating religious figures etc appeared in the discourse and most of these nationalist leaders somehow believed that uh, this kind of freedom cannot be granted where you can mock the religion of another person and that is how both these important laws came into being and interestingly what I also saw in my research is that if you look at the constituent as, sorry uh, the central legislative assembly debates of that period indians were also natives were also participating in those debates they were also raising their voice and saying that we need laws to protect religion against vilification and denigration so it was also coming from so the indian nationalists were uh, in a way in dual mind on the one hand they wanted extreme freedom of press on the other hand on religious matters they wanted restrictions and that somehow all collated together when they the the you know the responsibility of creating a new constitution came to their hand so they were very very conscious about this fact that religion is a very very emotional issue in india so we need protection of religion against verification or denigration and that is why you see 295a is often called the blasphemy law of india because it prevents anyone from making uh you know uh, comments or uh, trying to denigrate the image of uh, any religious leaders or uh, religious books texts etc so that is how the conceptual history of freedom of speech and expression developed in india the genesis of these laws that curb freedom of speech and expression start from the press acts of the late 19, 18th century and if you ask me about how did how, how indians defined freedom of speech and expression unfortunately and that is an important point that i have made in my second chapter especially that unfortunately there was not a lot of debate Everyone agreed that we need freedom of speech and expression in India, but there was no agreement about two issues. A, why we needed freedom of speech and expression in India, and B, how much liberty is too much liberty. So that that space left the vacuum, which created a lot of controversies later on and a lot of cases that appeared in the judiciary.
1: Yeah, um, you have um, gone into the, you know, the colonial and then the post-colonial aspect of how, you know, we understand the freedom of speech and all of those aspects. And I think that is something, that is the groundwork, the foundational aspect of how we understand um, the freedom. And interestingly, also in your book, you go very much into uh, so many case studies. And I think uh, one of the things that uh, comes out out of there is also, hmm, I mean, in terms of deciding about certain aspects of certain issues and certain the meaning of certain words and how you know uh, certain things need to be judged, um, what is the role of the um, court and the, and the judiciary and all of those aspects that you talk about, right? What is the role of the governmental institutions in that sense? Uh, what role do they play? Can you elaborate more on that in the Indian context? Yeah. If, if I have to answer that in one
0: sentence, I'll say uh, the role of Indian state and particularly the judiciary has made the idea of freedom of speech and expression even more ambiguous. And why I say that is because if you look into the history of cases in the courts, both remember we have to, uh, normally what uh, scholars on freedom of expression do is that they study only the Supreme Court cases. But interestingly, the... Indian Penal Code cases that I have discussed in my book especially related to uh, freedom of speech and expression and particularly with regard to banning of book or you know under uh, charging someone under section 295A they first appear at the state level and so they come in the high courts so until unless you study both high court cases and supreme court cases together you don't get the overall picture and that is i think something that i have added on to the methodology also of the of reading the court cases etc now secondly if you look into the history of court cases i have tried to locate all the cases that i could from all the uh, available sources about uh, religious offense and uh, censorship and what i Found was that courts uh, have a very confusing attitude, and why I say confusing attitude is because if you look at the way in courts handle these questions, in different cases they have different kind of approach. Now, for example, how do you define religious offence, and how do you understand religious offence in the context of India, and many a times when we read literature on freedom of speech and expression world over they make a clear demarcation between manner of speech and matter of speech so generally it is believed those who support freedom of speech and expression in a larger way larger framework they believe that manner of speech should be the important aspect of contention and not the matter itself but in the in Indian courts, many a times, both matter and manner become important. So, in some cases, they say that matter is important. In some cases, they say manner is important. In some cases, they say both manner in which a idea is presented as well as the matter, both are important. Secondly, India, as I mentioned, has Indian penal code laws, statutory laws, for example 295a now there are preventive laws and there are also punitive laws these laws 153b or uh, uh, 295a these are primarily punitive laws so it can be used against individuals but there is also preventive law for example section 95 of the crpc which is used to ban a book or censor a book Now, what we see when we analyze the court cases, that courts generally are more lenient while using, while judging cases where punitive laws are concerned, because they see it as a violation of individual rights. But when it comes to censorship issues or book ban issues, they give more advantage to the state in terms of their action. So what I have argued is that we find that in a way court appears to be justifying a lot of acts of state where the laws are used to for preventive causes. For example, if uh, I go to the district uh, magistrate and say that this book has come out and it is hurting my religious sentiment, then the magistrate might just ban the book in the area or, or take action against the authors. So, if the author or publisher goes to court tomorrow, the court might say, okay, uh, let us uh, leave this individual alone, let us not jail him. But to in order to maintain public order, it is better that the work should be banned or kept under, uh, you know, should be kept under custody and should not be made available to the public. So, in case of preventive laws, courts have been more lenient with his state action in case of uh, punitive laws they have been more uh, selective and more judgmental so in that case what happens is that although the author is not jailed but his work ultimately gets perked which again is a different kind of threat in the context of freedom of speech expression if you look at the justifications that the courts have used it has primarily used two kinds of justification first is the public order justification that any publication that tries to you know, bring about uh, uh, problems in the public order can be prevented or can be censored for the larger interest of the society and secondly it has come out with the argument of secularism where it has held as I mentioned during my introductory speech also that uh, article 25 which protects uh, right to religion in certain ways is seen as being in battle with this idea of freedom of speech and expression and in that case courts believe that right of religion is equally important if not more than freedom of speech and expression so there is no clear-cut advantage to freedom of speech and expression in india and the court tries to balance both the rights what it comes out is that for example if my religious sentiments are hurt because of your book then i can easily go to the state and claim the that my hurts my sentiments are being hurt and that publication should be banned and courts would say that look you have a freedom of expression. The author has a freedom of expression or the publisher has a freedom of expression. But this individual who is a complainant also has the right to religion. A right to religion also needs certain sacredness towards their religion, their religious figures. So religious figures or religious subjects cannot be debated or discussed even it is for if it is for academic purposes. We have examples where academic research works or uh, you know scholars uh, writing on religion have also been taken into custody or or have their books have been censored because of this aspect so all these this is one aspect of the court how judiciary acts the second aspect that i uh, have discussed in my book especially in chapter number five is how law and legal process itself plays a, law, uh, a way of hurdle for example i have talked about the procedural dimension of the legal process as hurdle and i have talked about the functional dimension of legal process as hurdle within the procedural dimension i have talked about three aspects a the spurious the case of spurious charging and overcharging for example i gave you example of two indian penal code uh you know statutory laws so whenever a publisher is uh, taken to court a lot of cases are put on him many of them might not actually stay in court but because the whole process legal process is so detrimental and so exhausting that the authors and the publishers actually get fed up of the legal process so First is that. Second is the. There's a uh, in India you have a liberty to lodge cases against a book or a publisher anywhere in India. For example, if you have published a book in Delhi, and someone is feeling uh, uh, that his religious sentiments are being hurt in Kerala, he can file a case there. And I have to travel every time when the hearing happens from Delhi to Calcutta. Uh, sorry, to Kerala. Okay, that makes the whole legal battle also very exhausting for someone who is engaged in say academic work or publishing a book which already is a very difficult process you know and then i have to go through all these uh, facing court cases and facing court cases in india as you know is not easy you get dates after dates and after dates and it takes very long for settlement of the uh, Of the uh, cases. And the third aspect is the issue of delay in judgment. So I have presented a a list of Supreme Court and High Court cases and uh, I have tabulated them about the important cases and how much time they took to settle in courts. Interestingly, if the case goes till the Supreme Court, you take at an average more than six years to settle that case. So you think I have written a book today, if that goes to the court and after 6 years if even if i am held to be not guilty the relevance of my books already disappears from the market so it is going to bear heavy loss both to the academician or the scholar who has produced the book as well as the publishers so generally publishers would try to pulp the would try to negotiate with the complainant try to ask the author to change uh, their stance or change certain parts of their books or Finally, at the end, they would decide that it is better to pulp the book and not get it on in the bookstores, etc. So that this whole process, the procedural dimension of legal aspect is a problem. Secondly, the functional aspect. Now, in the functional aspect, one of the most important thing that I have discussed is this idea about conflicting and confusing precedents. So court, courts in India are not just giving judgments they are also setting precedents because in every new case you will see references of the old case now if the position of court is not very concrete and as i mentioned court takes different positions in different kinds of cases then the procedure itself becomes very confusing and i as an author am not clear that what are my liberties If I have freedom of speech and expression, so whether I should concentrate on the matter of my speech, for example, or the manner of my speech, that it should not hurt someone's sentiment. Because remember, after all religious offense or the claim of hurt sentiments can often be very subjective matter in india in countries like india where society is uh, you know multi religious multicultural often this this claim of hurt sentiments is also used as a political tool to mobilize uh, people in support of a particular ideology or idea and to press upon the state to act against certain texts or certain books in favor, in the name of masses. So, for example, if someone has written something about Hinduism, a Hindu uh, person can file a complaint and also mobilize a crowd in the name of hurt sentiments and try to claim that he is the representative of that that community and stress on on the state to act against the uh, so-called culprits so in this kind of when this kind of political mobilization occurs around the ideas of hurt sentiments it also lays a lot of pressure on the state remember state is is not something uh, like uh, uh, which is independent of politics so if these people who are the executives of today they are also governed by the people's representative and people's representative also start looking it through the eyes of their instrumentality in elections. So they will also try to uh, satisfy the demands and the interests of the uh, people who are against the book because protecting the right of an individual author or scholar for them would not matter so much than protecting the interest of a community who is uh, claiming hurt sentiments so they also tend to favor the claim of religious offense or hurt sentiments of the group or community more than the individual's right to freedom of expression it's a very small price to pay for the larger interest of the group considering that that is also going to help them instrumentally in the elections to come so that makes the situation very gross and that is where judiciary has to play a very proactive role. So if judiciary is also giving you confusing precedents, then that vacuum or that that uh, an ambiguity can be misused by these kind of, of uh, mobilization or this kind of uh, so-called miscreants who are claiming hurt sentiments. I'm not saying that all the claims of uh, uh, these uh, hurt sensibilities are nonsense. I'm not saying that. Sometimes this can be genuine concerns but generally generally what the approach of the court is that they keep on a, a large space for ambiguity and that ambiguity is normally misused when people mobilize in the name of religious sentiments so be, uh, that is uh, if, that is why i say that if, if in one sentence you want my answer the role of judiciary has actually not been very encouraging it it has in fact, increase the confusion and ambiguity about how much my liberties are or what are the reasonable restrictions to my liberties. So in the name of reasonability, courts often define the boundaries of freedom of speech and expression Mm. in different forms. And that creates a confusion. As a citizen, if I just think about my freedom of speech and expression, I am not very convinced about how much freedom do I have and how I can use that freedom for my kind of work, any academic work or any kind of work, any kind of publication. I think uh, if I'm, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, yeah, it does. I think there's a quite elaborate explanation about how the legal system work and also at the same time the inadequacies of its operation and function in the sense. So I think that's a very good explanation. Uh, so moving further, I have a last question and uh, this is where you talk about uh, non-state actors, government, judiciary and the non-state actors where you also bring um, interesting examples. So um, can you elaborate on how these three come together and then work on deciding the legal aspect of um, you know, censorship? Yeah. Yeah, thank you. So
0: I, as I mentioned earlier, I see Quote also as a platform where three important ideas are coming together. One is the idea of the judges or the court itself. One is the idea of the state. And third is the idea of non-state actors. Remember, complaints can only be made by people. If I am feeling hurt sentiment or if I feel that my religion is being mocked or denigrated, I have to lodge a complaint in order to get a book censored or pubbed. Okay. Until I come, until unless I complain, no one is going to act. There, the role of non-state actors become very important. And uh, from in every country, in every country, there are laws uh, uh, restricting freedom of speech and expression in some form. So we cannot say that it is a unique thing in India. The role of non-state actors, however, in my book, I have argued that we need to understand the role of non-state actors in two different ways. One is where every citizen has certain rights one is to approach the court when i feel my fundamental rights are being hampered so for example if i feel my right to religion under art promised under article 25 is being hurt or or is being somehow uh, uh, denigrated or vilified i can approach the court i have every right to approach the court First is this kind of engagement of the non-state actors. Second kind of engagement is where I take upon myself as the role of protector of a community or a group and claim religious hurt. And in the name of hurt sentiments, I mobilize a mob and go and attack the publisher or the beat the author. So, I see both these kind of engagements of non-state actors differently. Many scholars in India believe that both of these forms of intervention are actually restricting freedom of speech and expression. But I try to make a distinction between both. Why? Because I believe that as citizens, we have been given certain rights by our constitution. Approaching the court, if I have certain problems, if I feel my... Uh, certain rights are being uh, questioned or uh, not uh, given enough uh, respect I have the right to approach the court that right is being given by the constitution and also in various cases in the court court has recognized this democratic right of citizens secondly I also have right to complain to the state authorities so I if I feel that for example if I am a believer of a particular religion and some religious personality of that religion is being denigrated in some writings, I have every right to complain to the state authorities and state authorities act and then the judiciary actually takes the case and gives me a reasonable hearing. I am not claiming that the judgment will be in my favor or not, but at least I, I need to be heard if I have problem as a democratic citizen. That part is fine with me because if still the jud if still the claims are judiciously heard by the courts and uh after hearing the case the court is giving some kind of judgment that has to be respected by all but if i as non-state actor for first of all non-state actor can be individuals or groups that we understand if individuals or groups take upon themselves to decide that because someone is hurting my religious sentiments, I should act against him or her by either burning his house or beating him or calling him names. That should be prevented. And it is the responsibility of the state institutions, the police and the state agencies to act against that. And for that you don't need the 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 claim of freedom of speech and expression government has enough powers under different laws in IPC where they can act against miscreants who create public disorder so we have to understand that one is the legal way of raising your concern trying to come to to terms with the writing in different ways second is taking law in your hands so I believe that we need to differentiate between these both, and what we find. I have discussed two important uh, cases here. One is the, how uh, you know the uh, how Taslima Nasrin's case uh, took uh, shape in India, and also Salman Rushdie's case. In both these cases in different times what we find is now these are these are just uh, uh, indicative cases and not exhaustive in themselves so let me make it very clear these are just examples that i have used but what it shows is that uh, mobilization in the name of hurt sentiments allows you liberty at times to attack the author or do harm to the publisher in different ways which is illegal but unfortunately state agencies also seem to curb down and give a hearing to these mobilizers and side with them at times, which I think is the greatest problem with freedom of speech and expression in India. So, on the one hand, the judiciary has created this ambiguity about freedom of speech and expression. Secondly, your state agencies are ready to follow the dictates of mobs in case you know because of the electoral considerations and thirdly as individuals we are not sure about our own boundaries of liberty and these all create a kind of wave of censorship so when i am as an author i am writing i am always confused whether my work whether my writing it is not going to offend someone and if I am working under that pressure, I am actually not doing justice with my work because I am not being objective. Now, if we take the Foucauldian understanding about censorship, etc., this postmodern approach, that, that that is all fine. But otherwise also, generally, as a human being, when I am producing a, a work either of literature, which is based on ideas or academic work, I have if i am over about the repercussions or the consequences that outcome is going to have i'll be fearful because i am not convinced that even the state or the judiciary is going to protect my liberties as an individual so all these together and that is where the role of non state actors becomes very significant so my work is the intervention because i try to distinguish between the legal course that the non state actors take at times which often as i mentioned many scholars have criticized that uh, even that course taken is a kind of censorship i agree it is a kind of censorship but still that is the only respite how do you differentiate between genuine concerns for example i'll give you an example uh, if someone tomorrow uh, actually questions or denigrates the religious text of my religion which genuinely hurts my feeling what is other way out for me. So do you want me to attack that individual or do you want me to go to court or the state agencies and request them to hear this out my plea and take and after that whatever decision is taken I respect that. So I think that that is a more legal course that that will create a more civilized way of uh, understanding the role of non-state actors. I'm sure that many people who believe in, you know, uh, who call Indian laws a slippery slope and they say that uh, any kind of restriction is a threat to freedom of speech in general do not or would not agree with my views. But still I take this risk to present Another picture of the same phenomena. How can we differentiate between legal course and illegal course? And if uh, if the group is being mobilized and they are taking law in their hands, the state has every right to restrict them and put them down. If the state is not doing, it is not doing their duties. You cannot blame the law for it because law is there. You have to act on the law. If judiciary is not in favor of freedom of speech and expression, that does not mean that I should be blamed because I am complaining against a book which is hurting my genuine religious sensibilities. So we need to differentiate between genuine hurt and the claim of offense which is generally exaggerated in different forms. And that is what i'm trying to do in my final chapter i'm to, trying to talk about how we can understand the role of non-state actors as censors more critically not saying that all kind of uh, intervention is wrong intervention but rather engaging with this idea that certain hurts claims of hurt sentiments can actually be genuine and how do we provide space to those c- genuine concerns the only way in which we can provide space to those genuine concerns is by respecting their right to approach the state or approach the courts to protect their rights. Because as I mentioned, they are as citizens if I have freedom of speech and expression, then also as citizens I have other rights. And in the Indian context generally there is understanding that no fundamental right trumps the other. So it's not like America where we see say that uh, you know many scholars say that first Amendment is uh, unquestionable so you have ultimate freedom of speech and expression. In India there was it was never the case. always the society, our leaders judiciary had this clearly in mind that no single fundamental right can be considered as you know over and above all other fundamental rights every fundamental right have equal value. And I think that is a a fair kind of balance that needs to be created that helps every citizen to to feel protected and also that his or her liberties are respected by society.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's very true. You know, I've uh, exhausted the list of questions that I have in my mind. So, is there anything from the book that uh, you think that I might have missed out or that the listeners sh- should know that you want to talk about?
0: Uh, yeah, uh, I think we. Ha- I have tried to uh, use all my chapters uh, and the, the content of the book uh, to discuss uh, the various issues that you have raised. But along with that one more thing that i do is to try and question two different approaches a i'm trying to question that approach which says that freedom of speech and expression needs no curbing people like uh, dworkin etc have in internal uh, political theory discussed and debated about this that there should no not be any curve on freedom of speech and expression and there i take a more uh, uh, you know nuanced uh, position that someone like Charles Taylor or Bhiku Parekh are taking, that contexts are important. You cannot compare the context of US and the context of India. You cannot have same principles guiding freedom of speech and expression, for example, in UK or in India. Remember, UK is also a country that had a blasphemy law till 2006. And interestingly, that blasphemy law was protecting only Christians. So every context is significant every society has its own complexities and therefore we have to understand the concepts based on the sensibilities and at least being sensitive to the context in which that concept is taking shape. This is the first point. Secondly, we also need to understand that in the Indian context, a lot of scholars generally think that because these laws are colonial laws, they should be dismissed. There is other set of scholars who try to argue and i'm not saying that uh, they do not have uh, evidences for that but i think uh, there's uh, uh, somehow i don't find their evidences very convincing they try to argue that all this a lot of this confusion and role of non-state actors increased in 1980s and they argue that this was primarily because of the growth of hindu nationalism in india now even if we look at the first aspect i have already discussed that why uh, these laws should not be called colonial laws anymore because these laws have been revisited in the free india again and again by the parliament and they, the parliamentarians were convinced that we need to continue with these laws in some with some amendments so they made amendments whenever it was required and there is always a space for amendment in the indian constitution so if uh, uh, the lawmakers believe that uh, uh, for example certain laws need to be amended or scrapped off they can very well do that they have every power the legislature has every power to do that or the indian courts have the power to do that so uh, supreme court has the uh, power to constitute constitutional review So it can say that certain laws are against the spirit of the constitution, so they stand null and void, but they have not done that. So you cannot say that 295 is a colonial law and so so we should do away with it. It does not have any relevance in independent India. I don't agree with that point. Secondly, those who are claiming that Hindu nationalism with the growth of Hindu nationalism we suddenly see uh, that uh, this is starting, I have i have argued two important things first uh, uh, hindu nationalism is not something new to india if you look into the history of hindu nationalism growth of hindu nationalism it goes uh, uh, even before independence uh, so we cannot say that hindu nationalism you know suddenly grew in 1980s uh, we can understand that uh, their uh, their argument is that with bjp growing in power this all things have started happen which i completely disagree with a we, if we see, even before 1980s, right from the moment India became independent, all these things are happening. If you look at the history of court cases, many of these court cases are actually of 1950s, 60s and 70s. Where was BJP then? Where was Hindu nationalism then? And it is not only concerned with hurt sentiments of, Hindus. So you have cases being filed by Muslims, cases being filed by Christians, cases being filed by Jains. What do you do about them? What do you say to them? So my problem is with a lot of scholars who work on this area, either they have not been very objective with their study or they have some motivations which I fail to understand. So if we take a holistic approach, we find that it's a problem, if, if, if we are ready to accept it as a problem, it's a problem that has great seedlings right from our colonial past. And that was not well settled when the constitution makers were framing our constitution. So because it was not settled then and there, for example, someone like Sunil Khilnani has argued that many Ideas in the constitution were left unexplained. So, although he's talking in a different context, but I find it very interesting the point that he's making that a lot of ideas were left unexplained, which actually needed explanation because you were trying to build a new India. The whole process of nation building dependent on how you are defining these ideas so if you are not defined for example you asked first question you asked me how do indians define freedom of speech and expression that is what i was trying to convey that indian in indian context freedom of speech and expression has not been defined they, they thought that it is important it is necessary it should be there they never debated why it should be there why what is the relevance of something like freedom of speech and expression if they would have debated that in the constituent assembly i think we would have got a lot of answers even the judiciary would have got a lot of you know hints about how they have to interpret the indian laws in the context of what were the intentions of our, of our framers of the constitution but that did not happen i think a lot of problems began from there So we cannot blame a particular government. We cannot blame a particular ideology for that. It's a problem innate to Indian society. And we as citizens of India have to deal with it every day. And that is why all these confusions keep on coming again and again. And I think that is where the role of judiciary has remained relevant, not only as a, a protector of fundamental rights, but also as a guide in all these. So courts do not necessarily need to take a paternalistic approach of saying what the citizens should speak and how much it should speak, but rather they should engage in a more collaborative way to understand and make a space to understand what our rights are and how our rights can be protected. So I think the more proactive role of courts in this Field would help us understand the debates in a larger framework. And that is something that I actually wanted to add to it. And although the courts remain very important in the debates of freedom of speech and expression, we need to understand that the courts have their own limitations. The legal process in India has its own limitations. So it's upon the judiciary to define how freedom of speech and expression can be protected and made relevant for the Indian citizens. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, I think this is a very pertinent work and a space for discussion. And I believe in the context like India where you are taking a contextual approach and also a comparative approach to the United States. I think the contextual approach that you take brings out the very essence of how this uh, system, the legal system, in the process of religious off- offense and censorship has evolved and i think i would request the listeners to really you know um, also get the book and also i believe that listeners will have garnered a lot from this discussion because this is something which is very pertinent to each and every uh, individual indians in that sense because we are living in a multicultural multi-religious context and uh, every now and then obviously the discussion on religion is something which is uh, being evident in the news, and in uh, news channels, and in newspapers, and I think this is very pertinent to each and every individual Indians in that context. So I think, Thank you very much, Dr. Nishan Kumar, for being here at New Books Network. I think this has been a wonderful conversation. I think this, is, this conversation should be carried on further um, with, again, more work coming out and more people coming to the platform and discussing this aspect. So, uh, on closing, I have two questions. The first question is, um, what is the current project that you are working on or what are you working on academically? Yeah.
0: Uh, as I mentioned, I work in the area of uh, uh, history of ideas, and uh, so c- current project that I am working on is on Indian knowledge system, and I am trying to understand the debates surrounding the relationship between religion and science in the Indian context, particularly uh, in the uh, late nineteenth and early twentieth century, uh, because uh, this is uh, an interesting period when uh, you know. Uh, a lot of uh, nationalist leaders or a lot of uh, so, social, socio religious reformers were debating uh, the way in which science and the debate surrounding science developed in Europe. And uh, religion, as you know, remains at the heart of uh, Indians, and spirituality was one area where the, even the nationalists used spirituality as a, a harbinger for uh, the nationalist movement. So uh, how they were negotiating with uh, this binary, if I can call it, uh, that was being created uh, between religion and science in the West. How were they negotiating with these binaries and how were they assimilating it? So that is uh, something that I am working on. I am particularly looking at people like Swami Vivekananda, Dhyana Sosati and, and others and try to understand how they were engaging with this idea between uh, science and religion in the late 19th and early 20th century.
1: Yeah, that's a really interesting uh, research interview that you have and I'll be keeping track of that one. So if anyone wants to reach out to you uh, regarding your book and wants to ask some questions or discuss certain things regarding your work, uh, how do they reach out to you? Yeah, Yeah, uh,
0: my email ID uh, is... uh, there so if you want i can share my email id uh, for the uh, listeners and uh, uh, i'm also on uh, social media profiles so i can reach out there so uh, in fact uh, i also and i'm a coordinator of uh, an international network of people working on uh, history of ideas so that is called intellectual history research group so we have a facebook profile also with that uh, group so i can be a reached out anywhere uh, my email id is nishantkumar at the rate of in, and uh, so uh, that is what was uh, i will be very happy if uh, listeners have read the book and uh, ask if there are uh, questions regarding it and uh, before we end uh, it was amazing uh, to talk to you about my book because uh, it's a you know it's a baby that uh, you care a lot for and uh, it's a it's a moment uh, when you come across through your platform I reach to so many people across the world uh, about uh, the work that I have been doing for the last seven eight years and so for that uh, I would I am deeply thankful to the network that you have created and it's a great great opportunity for uh, if I can call myself uh, young in terms of academics or a young scholar like me who who is coming out with his uh, second book, uh, per se. So I think these new platforms are uh, great opportunities for authors like us to actually communicate our ideas to the world. And so thank you for that.
1: Yeah, um, true, true. I think it's a wonderful privilege having you here at New Books Network and also um, at the same time, You know, it has been very much an enriching conversation in that sense. So I'll be keeping track of your work. And I hope, I I totally believe that listeners would have loved your conversation also. At the same time, they would have garnered a lot. So it has been a really enriching conversation with you, Dr. Nishan Kumar. And yeah, bye-bye. Take care. Thank you.